Happy New Year, everybody. Man, it's good to be with you. I actually had the opportunity to get away uh, this week. I was with my family, joining my mom and dad in Colorado to go skiing. I'm pretty proud of my folks, 73 years old, and they are both out on the slope skiing. Can you believe that? And we had a great time, and I have no broken legs, and so it's all good. And I will also tell you this, the odd odd thing about it, returning home, as we were on the airplane, I thought, Lord, thank you that I get to go home. That's kind of a strange thought. You know, usually on vacation, you're like, forget it, I never want to go back. And I had just the opposite. I, I love doing life with you all. Can I just say it that way? And the anticipation that we get to journey together through this year called 2016 fills my heart with excitement. I believe God's going to do good stuff in us and through us. You know, uh, Daryl mentioned our mission statement, to love him more, so more love him. I believe that this year, 2016, is a year that you're going to love him more. My prayer is that your passion for the Lord will grow this coming year more than it has ever been before in your life. Wouldn't that be incredible? It's my goal for me and for all of us together. And then that not only we would love him more, more would love him. That God would use us. I I am so blessed by hearing continual stories of people who are finding Jesus at our church. And I pray that that happens in 2016 at an unprecedented level. And by God's grace, he's going to use each of us towards that end. It's going to be fun. Also really excited about this series called Trials. And as a transition into the series, I want to tell you about a ossuary. You might say, what in the world is an ossuary? Well, I'll show you a picture here. Uh, this is a, an ossuary that was discovered in Jerusalem. Uh, really kind of fun. 1990 was the year they were building a water park in Jerusalem for the kiddos. And when construction happens in Jerusalem, it's always interesting because often in their bulldozing of dirt, they discover antiquities. And when that happens, construction is halted. The experts come in and analyze what's been found. And construction cannot continue until the authority gives the thumbs up. And in this particular case, construction was stopped for a long time because it was a big find. What they uncovered was an ancient burial cave, tomb, of a very wealthy, important family from the first century, filled with ossuaries, this particular ossuary. And he said, what's an ossuary? It's a bone box, of course. Uh, what they did for a short period in Israel, in fact, the first century was the only period they used this burial technique, but they would put a body in a tomb and let it rot, just lay there on a slab and decompose for two years. And when all the flesh was decomposed, they'd take the bones, clean them off, and put them in a box. Well, this particular ossuary had the name Joseph Caiaphas on it. And the experts started analyzing who was this wealthy, prominent Caiaphas in the first century. And the more they analyzed, the more they realized this is Caiaphas, the high priest found in our Bible. In the box, sure enough, were the bones of a 60-year-old man. And so in Jerusalem, you can go today and see this uh, ossuary in the Jerusalem Museum. And you can see the bones, the remains of a biblical character, Caiaphas. 
Caiaphas, the high priest, not only a spiritual leader, but a political leader, as one of his responsibilities was leading the Supreme Court in Israel, known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the most powerful men in the land. And it's the Sanhedrin that we're going to study. I actually have an antique picture of the Sanhedrin. This is actually a wood-carved, stamped photo or a drawing of the Sanhedrin. You can't see that, obviously, so let's zoom in on it on the screen here. And, and what you'll find, you'll say, you see them sitting in an ark in this elaborate room. Uh, first of all, the elaborate room, let's talk. Herod built the courtroom that the first century Sanhedrin enjoyed. And Herod always did things opulent to the extreme. You say, wow, there's a lot of them. 71 to be exact. And if you care to, you could count and find that the artist represented accurately the 71 men that comprised the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. They were a very special group. They were rich. Uh, it was kind of an inner club. And truthfully, when one guy died and they were to bring in a new one, the Sanhedrin would pick the next one. And they picked one of their cronies, one of the intelligentsia, the, the wealthy, the successful. And as a result, it was a country club of the highest order. They served for life. It wasn't just a three- or four-year term. No, it was a life term. And that life term just makes me very interested because what that tells us is that during the 25 years that Christianity began, the same group of guys had the opportunity to witness five Christians or a group of Christians on trial. What would it have been like to have been one of them? You know, imagine yourself, here's Caiaphas on his throne, and maybe you were one of them. What would it have been like to witness these Christians on trial? And you got to know, it was stressful on those Christians, so intense that in two cases, the verdict was kill them, execution. And uh, these members of the Sanhedrin witnessed these first Christians enduring hardship, but in every case, not just enduring, not just surviving, they thrived in the midst of it. They had a passion, a, a courage, a strength, a joy that must have mesmerized the members of the Sanhedrin as they watched in disbelief. Three of them, three members actually, became Christians eventually as a result of what they saw. We're going to sit in the seat of the Sanhedrin, and we're going to study the five biblical trials before the Sanhedrin in an effort to see how we, like they, can thrive in the midst of hardship. Each week, we're going to look at a grace that God gave to his people to help them. And this particular week, it's called the grace of dignity. The grace of having a self-worth in the midst of suffering. And we're going to learn how God gives this from the trial of Jesus Christ. The very first Christian trial, if you will, before the Sanhedrin was our Lord himself the night before he was crucified. 
And we're going to study the account found in the Gospel of Mark, though I'll tell you, all four of the Gospels record Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. But if you will, join me, and let's turn to Mark chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, can I encourage you to grab the one in the seat back in front of you? You'll find the passage on page 1020, 1020. But here's what it says. Mark... 1453, they took Jesus to the high priest. And Mark does not tell us the name, that the high priest's name was Caiaphas, but Matthew does. So if you're interested, you can check the Matthew account. It says his name is Caiaphas. And all the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, they came together, they gathered, that is, for an official trial. Next verse. Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there Peter sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Matthew adds the detail that Peter was there to witness the trial. From where he sat with the guards, he could observe what happened in Jesus' trial. Now that's important because at the end of the message, I want to turn to a passage in 1 Peter and see how Peter describes this very event. Sound good? Next verse. The high priest, uh, no, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. I wish I could tell you that this was a trial in its purest form, that everybody was unbiased, they just wanted to see the facts, but that's not the case. They came with a pre-commitment, and that was, this guy needs to die. Unfortunately, it was a mock trial. They didn't care what evidence was brought forward, whether it was true or not. They wanted Jesus dead. And so that's what the goal was. The passage continues, and some of this bogus evidence or twisted evidence is presented, and then it culminates with verse 61. The the high priest Caiaphas gets to the point and asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? What Jesus is on trial for is his identity because he made audacious claims. And they were trying to say, who is this guy? Is he just a mere man, just a lunatic, a crazy guy, deluded? Or is he really something special? His identity was on trial. And so they get to the point. Caiaphas is like, I'm just, let's just go right to you. You know, people are saying what you said. I'll just ask you, are you the Messiah? And look what Jesus says. Up to this point, Christ had been silent, but now the Spirit encourages him to speak. Tell them who you are. Verse 62, am I the Messiah? Jesus says, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's such a good verse that we're going to turn back to it in a bit and study it in more detail. But for now, let's continue. Verse 23, the high priest Caiaphas tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You've heard the blasphemy? What do you think, Sanhedrin? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. The verdict was given. The Sanhedrin cast their vote. They said guilty and deserving execution. Oh my. 
And then it gets even worse. I hesitate to even read the next verse. 65 says, Then some of them began to spit at him. The other Gospels clarify that they spit in his face. The members of the, some of these members of the Sanhedrin walked right up to the King of Kings, the maker of heaven and earth, and spit in his face. I mean, the most degrading thing you can do, arguably, is to spit in someone's face. That's what they did to Jesus. And then it goes on, and it says that they blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. Uh, Some of the Gospels clarify that this prophesy is a game. They were saying, you can't see us, so guess who hit you? If you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. In other words, six of them maybe stood in front of Jesus, and they said, okay, you see us six? All right, we're going to tie you, uh, blindfold on you. You can't see. Now here's how it works. Prophet, they're mocking him. Bam! In the face, as hard as they could. Didn't see it coming. And then they'd laugh and they'd say, all right, prophet, tell us which one hit you. Folks, in the trial of Jesus Christ before the Sanhedrin, the objective was pure humiliation. The objective was to do everything in their power to proclaim that Jesus is disgusting and worthless. That was the message conveyed by this judicial system. And one of the things that I found about hardship is that this assault on our dignity, this assault on our very self-worth, this message of you don't matter is commonly a part of all hardships. Granted, we haven't gone through anything as difficult as Jesus Christ, but if you go through hardship, take a look at what happens in your own soul. Often the biggest battle is not the circumstances itself, but their effect on us and our pathetic view of our own worth as a result. Think about it. Many hardships are because of failure. Uh, Maybe a marriage fails or parenting fails and your kid goes off the deep end or work-related failure and you lose your job. And, And what happens with failure? We believe we're a failure. When we fail, we conclude that we, or we're tempted to conclude that we are pathetic. And so many of us, when we go through hardship, if we have eyes to see what's going on in our soul, there is a violent assault on our very dignity and sense of self-worth that takes place. Or maybe our hardship is because of loss. We don't have what we once had, or we we lost what we were accumulating, whether it be money or a person. And if you have less, our society says you are worth less. And so, so often in hardship, our sense of worthlessness seeps in. Some people go through hardship and it's more a spiritual doubt at its very core. They say, you know, apparently I am suffering here because I am not worthy in God's eyes of blessing, some say. Or I'm asking God in prayer to remove this hardship and make it all smooth sailing in my life. And he's chosen at this moment not to remove the pain. And so he must view me as unworthy of that answered prayer. And so many of us struggle in our self-esteem, our sense of worth, a sense of dignity when we go through hardship. 
And we desperately need to learn from the example of Jesus Christ. Because though the Sanhedrin shouted and spat and hit and did everything to convey to Christ, you don't matter. He knew it wasn't true. One of the boldest statements of who Christ knew he was is found in this very event. Let's go back to it. Uh, Remember what Jesus said? I kind of skimmed over it and that deserves more attention. Verse 62, Jesus was asked, tell us, are you the Messiah? Caiaphas says, are you the Messiah or are you not? Look at this two-word answer. I am, Christ says. Do you know how significant that is? The Old Testament name of God, it's translated the Lord in our Bibles, but the the literal meaning, the the Hebrew word is Yahweh, the sacred name of God. And do you know what Yahweh means? I am. And when Jesus looked at them and said, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you, Messiah? Yeah, I am. He is pronouncing his divinity. Jesus is announcing that he is God in human flesh. And now you know why the the Sanhedrin just went ballistic because of this incredible audacity for a man to say, I'll tell you, I'm God. He goes on, Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. In other words, Jesus says, you don't realize it now, but you will. One day you will see me in a very different Role. I, I love this. He's, when he says the right hand, this is throne language. Uh, the Bible describes that in the ultimate courtroom, in the throne of God, there's God the Father, and at his right hand, God the Son, sitting in judgment. And I, I find it ironic. You know, Christ is before Caiaphas on the throne. And he's like, Caiaphas, that's a cute throne. Wait till you see mine, buddy. One of these days, you're going to step into the throne room of all throne room. Makes Herod's little setting here look like a joke. And you will realize that I reign as supreme king of the universe. When Jesus says, I sit at the right hand of the Father, he is proclaiming his position. Though they wanted to say, your position is nothing. Jesus said, I know my position is exalted. And not only is his position exalted, his mission is exalted. His life mission is so high. And that's implied here in the second phrase. And you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. The the psalmist describes that the Lord's chariot is made of cloud. That's the imagery here. It's a military picture. A chariot was a military vehicle. In fact, an army's power would be measured by how many chariots they had. And so the imagery here is the return of Jesus Christ riding on a cloud chariot, holding his sword high, the conquering king. Admittedly, before Caiaphas, physically, he looked pathetic, bruised and beaten. But Jesus says, don't let this fool you. You will see the real me when I come leading my army to destroy evil and to build a kingdom of beauty and glory, the kingdom of God in its full expression. Jesus says, you don't see it now, but you will see that my position and my mission 
are extraordinary. So spit to my face if you want to. Mock and laugh me. Strike me. Doesn't change the fact that I know who I am. And so the question is, what, what does this say to us? What, 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 what are we supposed to do in response to this? Well, I, I want to turn now to Peter. Remember I mentioned that Peter witnessed this trial? And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he gives a description of what he, see, what he saw and what we should do about it. 1 Peter 2.21. Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The suffering of Jesus Christ is not only effective in removing our sin, it's effective in providing us an example on how we should endure hardship. And Peter just says it. Do what Jesus did. Follow his example. Walk in his footsteps. He continues, When they hurled their insults at him, He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was on trial and insulted in all those ways, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Is that Caiaphas? No. He says, Caiaphas, I may be standing in front of you, but I'm not looking to you to tell me who I am or what I'm worth. I'm looking to the one who judges justly, and that's the Father. Jesus chose to reject what the system said of him and to embrace what the Father said of him. And that's what we must do. We must walk in his footsteps and follow his example. And so similarly, when we go through trials, the world is sending us the message, you are pathetic. But that's not the message of the Father. If we will turn to him and say, God, you tell me who I am, we will find in the scriptures that if you are a Christian, remember Jesus said, I'm I'm the one sitting at the right hand of the Father. His position was, what is our position? If you're a Christian, not only have you been forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God, you've been adopted into his royal family. You are sons and daughters of the king. You are princes and princesses of the eternal kingdom. You are royalty. No matter what the world says, the Lord says, this is not true. And what about your mission? Uh, Jesus said, I'm the conquering king riding forth, holding my chariot, or holding my sword, riding my chariot of the clouds. What is our mission? The Bible says that we are the ambassadors of God, the representatives of him to this broken, hurting world, that we are his soldiers fighting the good fight. Folks, your life matters. Your days count. Your effort to love your spouse is fighting for the kingdom of God. Your effort to disciple your children, your effort to love your neighbors, your effort to be a witness and a light to your coworkers, your effort here at church in serving to rise up the bride of Christ, it's fighting a glorious and eternal battle to advance the cause of Almighty God. You say, but my life is filled with hardship and failure and loss. I don't deny that. But that doesn't take away the spiritual truth of who you are. If you are a Christian, you are royalty. And you are called 
on a mission of tremendous, eternal, lasting significance where the souls of humanity is at stake. Do you see that? And we must not let the lies of Satan bombard us in our hardship and convince us that we don't matter because that's not true. Let me, let me use uh, an example here. Uh, I love props, as you know, and I brought a sword to church. I hope you didn't, but I did. And uh, <laughs> Some of you may recognize this sword. This sword is a replica of the sword used in the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings movies, and uh, it's the one that belonged to the king, Aragorn. I want to tell you Aragorn's story. It's, it's an interesting one. He was born the son of the king. And unfortunately, his dad, the king, died when he was only two years old. And his mother was so concerned about his safety because all of the kings were being killed by the enemy that she took him to this village in the woods and she left him with those people and said, don't even let him know who he is for his own safety. Hide his identity from him. And so Aragorn grew up thinking he was nobody. In fact, he was an orphan. Dad died, mom abandoned me, I don't relate or feel a part of this people I'm with. And then when he was 20 years old, this sword was presented to him. And it was explained to him, Aragorn, you don't realize who you are. As it turns out, this sword is yours. It belonged to your father, it belonged to your grandfather, your great-grandfather, and they were all kings. This is the sword of the king. You are royalty. And he was shocked to discover his true identity. Now, as he entered the next phase of life, he didn't take the throne. It wasn't time yet for him to publicly announce who he was. In fact, when we first meet him in the movies, here's a picture of what he looked like. His, his nickname was Strider. And he wore the dark hood, and he was a vigilante, kind of drifting to and fro, fighting evil as he had opportunity. He was scorned by many, viewed as suspicious and disdained by many. And yet, in his disdain, he would look at his sword and he'd say, they just don't know who I am. And the message of that sword and the reminder that it brought to him stirred me so much that I got the sword and I display it in my office because I need the same reminder. Jeff, remember who you are. In the midst of the hardships that I experience here at work or at home or wherever, I can get discouraged and I can start to view myself as I just don't matter. And the sword reminds me that in Christ, by grace, not anything that I deserve, I have been made a child of the Most High and that I have been called to wage war for him in the glorious pursuit of advancing his eternal cause and fighting for the soul, the eternal souls of people. And suddenly dignity is brought back to my heart in the midst of my darkness. You know, I'll, I'll share with you just an example of a time when this was very much the case in my life. Uh, years ago, I was a youth pastor, and boy, was it a hard time. You talk about failure, 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 failure. I was, whew. Anyways, what happened was I was a volunteer youth pastor, and the church determined that they were ready to hire a real youth pastor, and 
I was not the guy, so they fired me. I was fired from my first youth pastorate. I started looking for another one, and I found a church. They weren't willing to pay me, but they'd take me on as their youth pastor. And so I came on, and because I wasn't paid, I had to get a real job. And so I, I said, I'm going to wait tables. And I got a job at a nice restaurant waiting tables, and I was <laughs> fired from that as well. Turns out I'm not very good at multitasking, and I got confused, and I, I was bad. So I went to a different restaurant. I tried to talk myself into, this is an even fancier restaurant. It's going to pay better. It'll be better here. Uh, Technically, I didn't get fired from that restaurant. Technically, I quit right before the guy fired me. All right? Just to be clear. But it was, the writing was on the wall. And I said, you know what? Before you say anything, I quit. And he's like, okay. (laughs) And at that point, I realized that I'm not very good at this, and I went to a greasy spoon diner that served little sandwiches, and you know what? That gross place was right up my alley. Uh, Did all right. Never lost my job at that little place. But I'll never forget a conversation I had at that place with a customer. It was a guy who I had known since my youth, and he looked at me, and he goes, Jeff Griffin, you're waiting tables here, huh? I'm like, yeah. He goes, I thought you went to college. And I said, yeah, I graduated from Wheaton College, biology major. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. You were going to be a doctor, right? And I said, well, I was. But then my senior year, God called me into ministry to be a pastor. And he said, oh, how's that going? (laughs) Take a look. How do you think it's going? You know, it's not going very well. He said to me, and I'll never forget these words. He said, uh, sorry for just being surprised, but I didn't expect to find you working at a place like this. And those words just crushed me. I got in the car at the end of that day at work, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And as I sat in my car in the parking lot, a war was waged for my soul. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I was assaulted by the lies of the enemy, saying, Jeff, give it up. You are such a loser. You are so pathetic. Look at this career path. You can't even keep a job waiting tables. And I was so discouraged. But in my darkest moment, the Spirit of God arrived to rescue me. And the Spirit of God started speaking truth and chasing away the lies of the evil one. And as I sat in the car, God said, Jeff, you know who you are. You are a child of mine, Jeff. You've been adopted into my family and I'm the king that makes you a prince of my kingdom. And Jeff, I have called you to fight for me and my cause. And though your youth group is small, those students are of infinite value to me and you are waging a war for their souls. Fight the good fight. Lift your head high. Embrace who you are in me, even though times are really tough right now. And folks, as I drove away that day, I had been miraculously saved by God again. And that same war is being waged in your heart. I hope you realize it. But as you look at the hardships you face and feel those thoughts and the assault of you just don't matter, you just don't matter, 
You need to turn to the word of God and be reminded of a spiritual truth you cannot see. This is where it's so challenging because we're assaulted by the visual, physical realm that is constantly saying, look at you. But we must turn to the word of God and say, Lord, by your spirit, open the eyes of my soul and help me to see my true identity in Christ. Jesus, when he was told he didn't matter, he knew the truth of who he was. And we must follow his example and do the same. You ready to pray? Let's go. Lord, we turn to you right now. And we thank you for the example Christ has paved the way he has paved for us. Please, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to know that we are, like him, incredibly valuable to you? God, to those who are discouraged, I know that some of my friends right now are coming at the darkest of times, and those who aren't going through a dark time are going through soon. We're all in the same boat. God, whether we're in it now or coming, I pray that you by your spirit and through the truth of your word would minister to them in such a powerful way. God, that you would do what you're doing in me and them, and that is encourage us to look at who you've made us in grace through Christ. And God, I pray that the battle in our souls would be won by you, by your truth, and that we would be encouraged and that we would rise up even in the darkest night, hold our head up high in the dignity that we've received through Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.